Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I interview Kathleen Rooney about her new collection of poems, Where Are the Snows? The book takes its title from the famous refrain of Francois Villon's 15th century poem, Ballad of the Ladies of Times Past. Like that poem, the book wonders, where are they? As in, Where are the ones who came before us, the beautiful, the strong, the virtuous, all of them? In keeping with that long tradition, these poems offer a way to think about life's transience, its beauty, its absurdity, and of course, its mortality. Elusive and associative, anti-capitalist and unapologetically political, a line somewhere between comedy and anger, this poetry juxtaposes the triumphs and tragedies, mostly tragedies, of our current age with those of history, and, by wondering where are they, explores the questions of where we are now and where we might be going. Join me in encountering the keen and brilliant novelist, critic, editor, and poet, Kathleen Rooney. Kathleen Rooney, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness, you have one hell of a new book of poems. And the title is, Where Are the Snows? There is not a question mark in the title. And I'm just curious how, when you say the title of your own book of poems in your head, how does it sound? Is it is it wistful? Is it is it, where are the snows? Yeah, or is it ooh. like, where the fuck are the snows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I think it's it's a little bit of both. I want a lot of the stuff in the book to work in multiple tones. And so I think the reason that there's no question mark is on one level, I want it to work almost like that really, I'm not impressed. I can't be bothered. Lackadaisical internet speak, um, you know, where people are using like no capital letters, they're not punctuating. And so where are the snows? Just very like deadpan. I can't even inflect the question. But then I also want it to imply the question. And so you could, you know, read it truly in a wondering voice of like, where are the snows, you know? And I think I also want it, you know, it's of course a repurposed um, line from the poet Francois Villon, who's this, you know, French poet from the 1400s who famously has that refrain, where are the snows of yesteryear? And in his case, he's, you know, not to to jump the gun on future questions you might have had, but he's wondering sort of like in the tradition of the ubisunt, the, you know, the sort of Latin phrase of like, where are they? Sort of where are all the people who came before us and the the heroes and the, you know, beautiful women and the kings and and such. And so I I want it to evoke that, but I literally also want it to evoke climate change because I every winter now for the past, I'm going to say like 20 years, I've I've just had that sinking where are the snows feeling. 
And you're in Chicago where traditionally there are the snows. I am. And I think I feel a bit like a Cassandra. I I was sort of like lamenting the death of winter. Like I said, sort of like two decades ago, I just started noticing when I was an undergrad at the beginning of the 2000s and I would come home for the holidays from Washington, D.C., where I went to George Washington. And I just couldn't help but observe with alarm that the snows of my childhood were increasingly absent. And now, I don't know, I'm, I'm such a crank about it, but when people say that they're going to move away from Chicago because they hate the winter or they, they live in Chicago because it's so fantastic, if not for the winter, I get it. It's not like we don't have it at all, but I, I'm kind of like, just wait a, wait a couple minutes and, and it'll be fine for you. I just, I, I love winter. I know it's an unpopular opinion. So I feel like the title in a very short phrase encapsulates a lot of my, mm, I guess, dismay at the climate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, y- you thank you for that answer. You gave a, a beautiful job of talking about. I think the tonality that you captured just just in a title, which I think runs through the entire collection. I'm wondering if you'd just be willing to read one to start us off so that listeners would have a sense of the kind of poem we're talking about, um, because I think it'll surprise them. In a, for me, it was wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I want them to be surprising. So I'll, I'll just, without too much explanation or preface, I'm going to read one called The Production and Consumption of Goods and Services. And so if anybody's got a copy and is listening, you know, along and wants to read, um, it's on page four. So it's early in the book. And I think it kind of sets that tone. So the production and consumption of goods and services. The etymology of economy lies in household management, thrift. I'm not into real estate fantasies, but I can see the appeal of a cottage with a slate roof, copper gutters, and period shutters, a place to shut in, shut out, shut down, shut up, my comeback to Mammonites demanding blood sacrifice to the death cult. Why should I die for the economy when he would never do the same for me? Please respect others and only take what you need. The rule on complimentary tampons and pads in the bathrooms is basically my plan for the entire economy. Tragedy of waste, the waste of tragedy. Can material loss yield spiritual gain? Probably so, but not automatically. What would you make if you didn't have to make money? I don't want to go back to business as usual. I want to give business as usual the business. France last executed someone by guillotine in 1977. Freeze and put your hand where I can see it. I said that to the invisible hand of the market. That's great. That's great. So so we have one of these in front of us and and there's humor and there's there's leaps and there's associations and there's wordplay could i know this is a tough question and but could you tell us a little bit like like how does a rooney poem work <laughs> yeah yeah um i think a rooney poem works by i don't know i kind of think of it as like smuggling candy into the movie theater like you're already hopefully excited to go see a movie, right? But then it's just going to be that much better because you're bringing in candy and you didn't have to pay a lot of money for it. So 
what I mean by that is I hope that the people who read my book are already stoked to read a poem. But then I hope that uh, kind of like you said, there's like a certain element of surprise or unexpectedness where like once they're sort of in their seat and ready for the show, they're like, what? I get peanut butter M&Ms too. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of the poems are really um, like serious and trying to make not just one point, but several points. And I hope they're working on a lot of levels that are worth people's time and maybe even like if I can say it without sounding too pretentious, like profound, but I also want them to laugh. You know, I want them to, in the midst of hopefully encountering these aphorisms that make them think, like, I really hope when people hear the question, what would you make if you didn't have to make money? They can't help but answer it. So I feel like that, you know, could be a lighthearted answer, but it could also be like a pretty serious rabbit hole to tumble down. But then, you know, when I kind of like get to parts about how, um, you know, why should I die for the economy when he would never do the same for me? That's like funny and serious. Or when you get to the end and I'm talking to the invisible hand of the market, you know, just those little, little M&Ms in addition to the main show. Yeah, th- there is this wonderful range of, of humor and it makes us, well, one, one of the surprises is that normally if you're imagining, you know, in what genre in contemporary American letters will I go to in order to get a hilarious laugh? You don't think collections of poetry. And yet, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the poem next to the one you just read, and it begins, sometimes a friend posts a photo of their newborn, and it's all I can do not to type, welcome to hell. Yeah. <laughs> yep, <laughs> Which is story. hilarious <laughs> and heartbreaking. And so I think you've got the the full range of, of humor you know, in the way that word used to mean, which is, you know, the components that made up our personality, you know, sanguine and melancholy. Um, There's slapstick and puns. Are you making yourself laugh as you write these? Are you breaking your own heart as you write these? Yeah, yeah, good question. And I love what you just said about the the humors and sort of the four humors, because I hadn't thought of it that way, but I'm gonna, like, probably say that in future interview. So thank you for that. And yeah, I, um, I don't know, I just got back from uh, Martin, my spouse, who's also a writer, and I were in Muncie, Indiana, teaching in the Midwest Writers Workshop, which was really fun. And one of the workshops that I taught there was humor in poetry, I called it send in the clowns. And it was kind of on that how poetry actually can be a really friendly environment in which to joke around, but people don't necessarily always think that. And so I actually do in my little, you know, write up my little catalog blurb for that class, quote the famous Robert Frost dictum where he says, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, which was first said to me by Bill Knott when I was studying at Emerson. And I've just thought about it almost every day since, because obviously the whole point is if you're not evoking some kind of genuine emotional response in your own heart and mind as an author, probably it's not going to carry over to the heart and mind of your audience. And so, you know, Frost used tears, and I think that's true, but I sort of then in the little blurb and just in my life think, you know, no laughs in the writer, no laughs in the reader. And um, yeah, if you don't find your own jokes funny, they need to be better jokes. So I think if I'm making myself laugh, which I often am, and even when I like read them out loud to an audience, um, 
you know, it's, it's like some sort of like SNL sketch where I'm like, don't break, don't break, you know? Um, cause I still, I, you know, again, not to sound too tooting my own horn, but I, I'm pretty happy with how a lot of the jokes land. And then when I've started reading them to an audience, it's really fun just in that communal way to hear where people laugh too. And I think I'm the kind of person who, if I, you know, like social laughter, if people are laughing, I want to laugh too. So that feels good. And I'm trying to give people a chance to laugh. Yeah, sure. Sure. And I I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is I was reading this. um, I don't, I don't know how many writers talk or think in a foremost way about their work in terms of, of affect for the reader or the audience. There's a lot of like, I want to capture this. I want to represent this. I want to be evocative of that. Um, but but this form that you use with its juxtaposition, with its swerves, it really feels as though you are imagining the the surprise. You know, Frost also says in that same essay, "No surprise for the reader, no or no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader." Um, a sense that that these are immensely experiential. Um, for the person sitting in the movie theater. So I love the fact that you started with that metaphor rather than the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I do. I, I mean, I like that you point that out. I think as a writer, whether I'm doing poetry, fiction, nonfiction, a book review, anything, I'm super, super other directed. And I think, I don't know if it's cause, I mean, I don't love labels and I certainly don't love binaries, but if we must, um, I, I think I'm an extrovert. I mean, that's what the, you know, Myers-Briggs tells me. So, um, I think, you know, I, I definitely get energy from other people and I think part of the energy comes from, you know, that back and forth. I think, um, I have a poem in here about, um, badminton cause I love that sport and played it in high school. And so to me, in addition to to sort of the the audience in the movie theater, I I feel like we're playing a game. I kind of want these poems to feel like I'm, you know, doing the serve and the shuttlecock comes over the net and I don't want you to just stand there. I want you to like hit it back. I want you, you know, I want, I want to imagine the reaction. So, you know, of course, at the end of the day, I'm writing these by myself. There's no one here. I'm sort of, you know, running back and forth across the net myself, but I do picture like, what if I were playing someone else? And so, um, you know, like when I say something like in another poem, I say, I can easily imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. I picture, I can't help but picture even as I'm writing it, like, hmm, can the person reading it, like, what do they picture? Can they picture both? Can they only picture one? Like, who are they? So yeah, I definitely think about the, I, I don't know if it's also too, because I'm a teacher, I'm always uh, trying to make sure that like my point's coming across. Um, I just, I, I'm like, nobody gets left behind. Everybody gets something out of what I'm, I'm uttering here. So I think I carry that over into my writing. Right. Would, would you mind reading the badminton poem? Yeah. Um, I would love to read that. I, so yeah, I love badminton. Um, it was super fun to write this poem because I think people, um, don't realize how hard badminton can be, which is a little bit of what I talk about. So, um, yeah. So if people are, if they have the book, they're on, uh, page 34 now, so a court game played with long-handled rackets. Given the kind of dork that I was, badminton was my high school sport. Everybody pictures it played casually, beer in one hand in a grand backyard, but competitive badminton is actually hard. Music is a cosmic utterance. In the gym, we did our drills to Q101, Chicago's new rock alternative. 
you got to keep them separated. Here we are now, entertain us. I'm a loser baby, so why don't you kill me? I wasn't that good. Our coach was from China. He wasn't kidding around. We'd skip and jog, gallop and lunge for 30 minutes across squeaking floors to improve our stamina before he'd let us pick up a racket. Clear, drive, drop, smash, net, forehand, backhand, universal, footwork, strokes, friendship bracelets, Gatorade. I still laugh at the word shuttlecock. As in many sports, there were lessons that applied off the court. Vigilance, preparation. Ready position, turn racket back. Who doesn't want to react faster to the shot of her opponent? The way a game can compress time is a kind of interstellar magic. I still possess a killer serve. I reserve it these days for streetcock, badminton in the alley, or the grass by Lake Michigan at Purple Martin Field. Birdies over the net, birds overhead, light feathered objects aloft in the twilight. I used to think, if I'm not trying hard, am I even really trying? Now I allow for the marshmallow fluff of goofing around. My sister played too. We still pose some trouble at doubles. To lose ourselves when the world is stupid in a volley swift as Cupid's arrow. They say the game started in India and became formalized in the UK, named after a duke's estate in Gloucestershire, but a historical link to this place has never been proved. NASA's fleet of Earth-observing satellites monitors our planet's health from space, oceans, biospheres. They probably don't show when the Olympics get postponed. The shuttle part of the name derives from the back and forth motion of the game, resembling the shuttle of a loom. Athletics as a kind of weaving together. We shall meet again on the court of play, or we shan't. Either way, nothing lasts forever. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. That moment where we're suddenly above the earth down, and the whole perspective of the poem shifts is quite stunning. Oh, thank you. So let's let's talk a little bit about form. I can imagine, you know, listeners hearing these poems and they don't get to see them on the page. Um, and and anybody who's ever picked up an anthology of poetry, you know, one of those big Nortons or anything like that, right? You flip through it and there's a kind of visual consistency as to what a poem looks like. And I think then if if that same person picked up your poem, your book of poems and flipped through it, they might be surprised. They might be like, wait, wait, there are no lines in this book of poem or, or are there? Um, you know, way back you had mentioned aphorism as one way of, of stitching these together. So could, you know, if you were going to talk about like the poetics of your book of poetry, like how you, you see them or how you see form functioning. And I'm thinking of this especially because you're also an amazing novelist and prose writer. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how, you know, maybe your overall aesthetic approach to craft informs what you're doing in this book. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked because I love talking about form and content and I love thinking about how a structure is the container for what you want it to contain. And I think they're inextricable or should be. And I feel like because I do write in multiple genres, I always sit down and know 
at the beginning what it's going to be. Like, I know it's going to be a poem or I know it's going to be an essay or I know it's going to be a novel or I know it's going to be like a poem that has line breaks or a prose poem, which is probably what I would say these are. Um, and so I think, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there's like no discovery. I make tons of discoveries, but I never am sitting down and, and start writing what I think will be a poem. And then I'm like, whoops, it's a novel. You know, it's just, I always know. And so with these, I think I, so I wrote these mostly in the spring of 2020 in a national poetry month, you know, poem a day group run by the poet and editor Kimberly Southwick. And so, you know, it was something I had a chance to think about. And so I was coming from a place where um, my novel, Share on Me and Major Whittlesey, was coming out later that year in August of 2020. And I had been doing, prior to the pandemic, a ton of poetry on demand, where I do this Poems While You Wait thing, where I take my typewriter and a bunch of my friends who take their typewriters, and we all go to a public place and people give us a donation and a topic and we write poems. And so for that, which I've been doing since 2011, I almost never write a prose poem. They always look like what, you know, kind of like you described, like what people would expect, you know, um, line break stanzas, all that. And so I was sort of um, realizing when Kim asked me if I wanted to participate, I was like, wow, I haven't just written poems for myself in a long time. My, you know, poetry book prior, um, Robinson Alone had come out in 2012, which was like, eight years ago then. So I, I didn't sit down and think like, oh, I need like training wheels or, oh, it should be prosy because I'm not quite ready to do poetry. But I was just like, okay, yeah, like I haven't written a poem just for me that I'm not, you know, giving to a customer in forever. So like, what do I want it to look like? So I think I just sort of settled on it pretty organically. And I knew that if I was going to do a poem a day, I didn't want to have to think about reinventing the wheel every morning. Like we were all in a Google doc and Kim would put in a prompt and I wanted to just do that early morning thing where I get up and, and do a couple of things and then just hop on and write my poem and I'm done with it by like 10 a.m. Um, so I knew if I wanted to do that and really stick to the everyday thing and that might be my, I don't know, I just like read about my badminton drills and my, you know, like that discipline thing where I was like, I'm going to do this every day. I've got the stamina, I've got the endurance. Um, I just knew that I needed a form. And so I think I just settled on this. Um, so if people, again, if they have the book, they can see it. If they don't, um, there's sort of our breaks, but it's more, I would call them like stanza graphs and, you know, then stanzas. It's, there's white space. It's not just a prose block. I think a lot of times when people think of prose poetry, they think of just like a big chunk of text and that can be cool. And I've written those, but I wanted some white space um, and I wanted to let them breathe. And so they're sort of like almost like little fortune cookie fortunes. Like they go, you know, horizontally across the page till they're done. And then there's a new one and then there's a new one. So it's just almost like a stack of fortune cookie fortunes where the little parts I hope sort of stand alone and give you a little blip of something and then they accrue the more you read them yes yes they certainly do I, I love I love stanza graphs almost as much as I love stacks of fortune cookies um, yeah. yeah that that's magnificent and I like that the food metaphor is looping through as a way to describe your aesthetic <laughs> yeah. as we do this and it's yeah, not just I'm, any I'm food baker, it's treats so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I love, I love a treat. <laughs> so, so you know, one of the questions that that I come up against as a fellow writer and as someone who who works with other writers um, who are creating work like this that that is associative, that accrues, um, that leaps. Um, you know, there's the question of of how do you know what goes in and what goes out, 
And how do you know when it's finished? Um, and often this will come up when a draft is on on the table of a work like this, and you'll see, you know, one like the one you read, and, and you could say, well, you could you could bring in more history of badminton, or you could move to other perspectives like you do in space. Um, and that's very different from, say, if someone's writing a, a villanelle, uh, where you have a very clear sense of when the poem will be finished and how it's supposed to operate. So, so what is your what is your method for for thinking about? Okay, this this poem is done, or this poem has reached the kind of cohesion that I want it to, because it's 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 maybe closer to like an abstract painting. Like, how do you know when that's done? As opposed to say traditional representational painting. Um, yeah, yeah. Besides the fact that maybe it was ten o'clock and you needed to move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I that's a great question. I, I like the abstract painting. I think um, so. I teach creative writing at DePaul, like truly just a class called Intro to Creative Writing. And when I teach it, I use Janet Burroway's imaginative writing text, which I really love. I love the way it's set up. And she has a chapter on development and revision in which she introduces this concept that was one of those moments. I mean, it's kind of like that Alexander Pope moment, right? What oft was thought, but ne'er so well expressed, right? Like his sort of definition of poetry, where when you're reading something good, you hear somebody say something that intuitively you've kind of known, but then you hear someone actually put it into language and you're like, ah, that. And so in that chapter, she has kind of an expected explanation of outlining and sort of like, well, one way to, to develop a piece is to outline it, which I certainly do. Like when I write um, novels, I, I cannot imagine writing without an outline or even like a blueprint would be another way to think of it. But when I write um, a poem, outlining doesn't seem appropriate to me because that's not you know, poems aren't usually character driven or, you know, plot based, etc. So Burroway introduces this other form of development when you're drafting that she calls quilting. So quilting, like making a quilt to cover a bed. And that's where you, whether it's a poem or an essay or, you know, even fiction, if that's your inclination, you don't outline it and you don't go linearly through and you don't go chronologically. You don't go in any kind of order. You kind of make blocks, you know, you, you dump a thought into one block or one paragraph or one chunk, and then you make another block and then you make another one. And you know, in the process of creating these blocks that you're not putting them in order necessarily yet. So that's kind of what I would do is I would sort of, I feel like I always kind of knew uh, with few exceptions, I mean, it did change a bit on revision. Mostly the sentence I started with kind of stayed that way. Not because I was like setting a rule, but just because I usually was like, yeah, no, that's a good place to start. And also like a start's kind of arbitrary when you've got your topic, you can just be like, okay, it's about badminton. Like I just need to say one thing about badminton and we're off to the races. But then the rest of it, I would sort of like fill a page and I would like overwrite and put too many blocks. And then I would look at what I have and be like, this is way too big of a quilt, right? And I would just be like, it's only a twin bed. This is too long. It's going to like drag on the floor. So save these blocks for later or just like cut them out. Um, and I don't know if that appeals to me so much because my um, grandma Marge was a quilter and I, I spent like so much time in my childhood, like watching her sew. And it was totally fascinating to see her take 
all this fabric. And it wasn't just fabric. Some of it was from the fabric store, but it would be like, you know, the old shirts that her like seven kids used to wear or like people from the town would give her material. And she'd be like, oh, this is like a dress from this girl who died of appendicitis in 1966. And you're just like, oh my God. So just like watching her make these blocks that each had like a story unto themselves and then stitch them into this bigger thing. I think that's why I, like when I heard that you could call this way that I already sort of naturally composed quilting, I just like grokked it so hard. I was like, yes, because I do hope that within these pieces, each block is beautiful unto itself and you could spend time on just like one little chunk. But then when they go into this quilt, you're like, ah, yes, it's, you know, there's no missing blocks. It's not too long. It's not dragging on the floor. No repeats. It's, it's, you know, it's a crazy quilt, but it works. Yes. Yes. That's, it's a beautiful metaphor. And what I love is, is that, you know, you have these pieces and, you know, had had something been slightly different, had 10 minutes gone by, you might have put them together slightly differently. Um, and so that that classical idea of sort of the inevitable talos of a, a work of art um, goes out the window and instead chance and surprise and delight come in, um, you know, fortuitousness, which which feels very alive in this book. Thank you. Yeah. And and one of the things that that just as a fellow writer, I think this form has allowed you to do is is suddenly it's just dazzling on the level of the sentence um, uh, in the way you're using syntax. Um, You know, there's this story about um, in this in the Samuel Beckett archives, there are these notebooks and, you know, like a lot of us, Beckett would write down all of his favorite sentences as he was reading. Um, but the funny thing was that they're crossed out. And then scholars eventually figured out that he would cross them out when he used the same structure in his own work. Oh, my god! So, like, here's amazing. this sentence from Augustine. And then once I use it, I cross it out because I've used that structure. Um and and I had this similar impulse, like I just need to stop and write some of these things down because you're getting so much energy with the syntactical arrangement and you know the linearity of, of syntax and the way that you're you're reversing and it's just dazzling. Thank you. Yeah, I love wow, I didn't know that about Beckett. That makes a ton of sense. And um yeah, I think a lot about so I, I guess this is the thing, like I uh, the, to the syntax point, you know, when I knew that I was going to be writing prose poems, I knew that unlike an alineated poem, which gets a lot of its, um, you know, visual impact and sometimes other impacts from the way the line breaks and like the way the line break can be so surprising or just like that little glitch in the brain when you're moving from line to line. I was like, okay, I'm not going to have those tools in my toolbox. So what do I have? And syntax is absolutely one of those things or a way to make yourself be varied and be rhythmic and be thoughtful, even though, you know, to your point, you're not writing a villanelle. So you're not going to, you know, follow those exact structures or have a meter or have a rhyme scheme, but you can still think deeply about structure. And then just, um, this isn't exactly what you asked, but just it kind of, I feel like it's related to, to another thing of composition that I did. And also Beckett sort of raises it. This book has, um, as you can probably already tell just from the, the stuff that I've read, a lot of quotes and citational material where I'm, I'm 
quoting and putting myself in sort of a back and forth with other writers and musicians and thinkers. And so, um, I don't know, that just makes me think of Beckett's thing. Like in, I, you know, I have a poem where, um, it's about beginnings and it's called the point in time or space at which something originates. And this is just one example where I say in the nature of things in 45 BCE, Lucretius wrote, all life is a struggle in the dark, go around saying things like that and you'll literally never be wrong. Um, so just thinking of how other people have said stuff in the past and then thinking not like exactly in the Beckett way of like, could I make a sentence that, you know, uses nouns and clauses that way, but just, where does someone else's sentence ricochet me off to? Right. How does, how do you incorporate their music into, into your music or their mind into your mind or their presence into your presence? I think that's, that's wonderful. Um, well, so I'm going to ask us a question that, that is another impossible question that takes us in a different direction. Um, but you're, you're being so generous in your answers and I'm curious to hear what you would think. So, so first I'll start off with like a little, like, oh, here's one of the, the things that has been depressing Eric LeMay. Um, it feels as though while some of the American authors out there and some of the pieces that we're seeing are trying to reckon with a kind of post-March 2020 world that a lot of the work still feels as though it could have been written a decade ago or or in the Clinton era or something like that, that like here we're having, to my mind, this moment in American life that that has a precedent that maybe since the civil war we haven't seen of, of the kind of upheaval. Um, and I wish more, more writers were gravitating towards that. But as I've interviewed a lot of them, there's, there've been, there's been a lot of like, I'm exhausted. I can't do it, which I totally get. Um, or, you know, as a writer and somebody who stays at home all the time, this is kind of my best life and I'm doing it. And I'm like, Wow. Ah, ah. And um yeah. <laughs> and reading this book it really felt like you are responding to what's out there that I could read this book of poems and look out the window and see Chicago or I'm in rural Appalachia looking at trees but it still feels like I, okay this poet is seeing the world I inhabit and a lot of the you know predominantly lyric poetry that I'm seeing in the American scene right now I, I look out and I think what what world are they looking at? Um, so so I wonder, you know, does that ring any bells for you? Is anything coming up? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I definitely. So mm, I think like these past couple of years, obviously everybody's been through it. So I want to start by saying I'm not casting aspersions on anyone's exhaustion or you know anyone's mm, depressive mental state or, or whatever it is. But I think, I don't know, I, this book to me, I mean, I dedicate it to the future. And like the title, I want that to be readable in multiple tones. I think you could read to the future and be like, lol, what future? You know, like everything is so fucked. Good luck with that. But then I also want it to be read in a like, true, sincere, like to the future, like we have one, it's coming at us all the time. And so I was definitely um, writing these poems. I mean, in April of 2020, I'm so grateful to Kim for putting this group together because there's no way she could have known. But 
corny as it is, I mean, it saved me. It got me through that super hard, just panicky, anxiety-ridden time. But then, so I, the, the book got written in two shifts. So I wrote that and and that was a lot. Like the book was funny, I think, but it was a lot sadder and a lot less um, future looking. And I had to let it sit until after the election, until after November of 2020. Not that that was some, you know, opening of a door into paradise, but you know, we got rid of the worst thing. <laughs> so I feel like it was kind of like a stay of execution. Like we might still be on death row, but we didn't die that day. So after that forestallment of what felt like an execution, I was like, okay, I can come back to these and see where I've given too much space to the way things were before or the way I was feeling prior and open it up to this idea of like, we've just been through, like, as you said, one of the most cataclysmic events, I'm going to say in history, certainly in our lifetime. So like I said, I don't want to go back to business as usual. I want to give business as usual to business. I think it's an opportunity. You know, I still hold out hope for the revolution. I still hold out hope that like a better world is possible and we don't have to live the way that we're living. And I'm not that I think my poems are going to like bring about the revolution, but I want them to be in that revolutionary spirit of like another world is possible and we could have it if we tried. That's great. That's thank you for that. Um, yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, could could you talk about that in relationship to to where we started with your title? Um, you know, you had mentioned that that where are the snows goes back to Villan and and the the kind of Latin trope of like where are the beautiful women? Where are the snows of the past? Where are the great men? And that and there's a little bit like like if you twist that, you know. 13 degrees or something it's like where is the greatness of the past can we be great again which starts to sound really scary um so there's this this sort of backward looking and maybe it's ironic and then there's this dedication to the future uh and it's a really fascinating and complex tension that i think um animates the book so i'm curious about that dynamic Yeah, great question. So I definitely want this book to be engaging with history. I love history. I mean, I write all kinds of things in my fiction, but I think I'm, to the extent that people know me, they know me for my historical fiction, like Lillian Boxfish and Share Me. And I have this relationship to history that I think at a cursory glance, I think a lot of times the the genre of historical fiction or just an orientation toward history can get mistakenly construed as some nostalgic yearning from a a more romantic or more glamorous or more stable time. And I think if you read my work in in that genre, you'd realize that's not what I'm doing and that's not what it has to be. Um, But I think I want this book to sort of consider history not as a thing that we yearn for and that's over and that we should be sad about that, but more as this like treasure trove that most of us don't open up, but that we can go back to it and find examples of other people who've lived through cataclysmic times or who have been up against huge problems and not given up. Like I, you know, in the last poem in the book, which I I hope is kind of like the big send off, which if, if people haven't gotten where I'm coming from, it's a bit of like a friendly elbow in the ribs, but I say, um, what do you think Malcolm X meant by, by any means necessary? Um, I just think like, I don't know. I, I hope that the engagement with history and the engagement with like the past and the future is again in service of that. Like people have dealt with hardship before 
and not to cornily give things a silver lining, but like, who can we look to? Like, where are the snows of yesteryear? Because like, if we dig around in them, we find models of how to be. And I I think that kind of goes to, I can't remember who said it. I read it in like a book review of some biography, but the the writer said that, um, you know, she doesn't read self-help. She reads biography. And that just like stopped me in my tracks because like, I really am skeptical of like the genre of self-help. But when I read a good biography, I do sort of see like, oh my gosh, so that's how, you know, that's what Virginia Woolf did to deal with that hardship. Or that's what, you know, like Florence Kennedy did when she had to, you know, set up this protest for workers. It's just, I think there's a lot there. And so I hope the book is like that and not like, God forbid, MAGA. Yeah, I love that. I love it. It's it's something like not a, not succumbing to this default assumption that just because history is past, it was ever resolved, but that it's just this succession of of struggles and and human challenges that are as much alive um, back then as they are for us now, something like that. Exactly. Would you would you tell people who don't know about your historical fiction just the conceits of uh, you just got some some amazing books that as soon as you hear how they work you want to read them and I want to give listeners a chance to to be like oh I've got I've got to go check that out so oh my gosh yeah the best question thank you um yeah so the um again the book I think if people have heard of me that maybe Lillian Boxfish takes a walk is the one. I mean, it became a national bestseller, so I'm, you know, playing the numbers there. But it's about this woman, Lillian Boxfish, who takes a walk. And she's based on a real woman, Margaret Fishback, who was the highest paid female advertising copywriter in America in the 30s. And so she was super effective at her job. She basically invented and pioneered the use of comedy in ad writing, because prior to her, it was sort of seen as like poor taste to to joke around when you were trying to get someone to part from their money. Um, so she was like, no, no, we can lighten up. Um, she was also a light verse poet. So I the structure of the book is that this, you know, Lillian Boxfish based on the real life Margaret is 85 years old. And she is in New York City where she's lived her whole adult life. And it is New Year's Eve in 1984. And so she takes this walk. Um, She doesn't plan on it. You know, she thinks she's going to have her traditional New Year's Eve where she goes to this one restaurant and, you know, goes home, goes to bed early. And then she just ends up having this like epic adventure where she walks 10.4 miles. There's a map in the front of the book and you can see her walk. And I want that to be not like, oh, an old lady could never do that. But like, oh, wow, this is an exceptional old woman who, who would still have like the physical and mental tenacity to do this kind of walk. So I want it to be magical but not implausible. So there's that one. And then the um, one that came out during the pandemic is Cher Ami and Major Whittlesey, which is about World War One. And Cher Ami was a pigeon and Charles Whittlesey was a soldier. And they were involved in this incident known as the Lost Battalion, where this group of men led by Whittlesey um, in October of 19 were the only group of men all along the Western Front to break through. Like they were all supposed to break through and just like finally defeat the Germans. And it didn't work out. And so they got trapped behind enemy lines and surrounded. And so Cher Ami, the pigeon, had to carry this message that saved all these soldiers from a friendly fire incident because the Americans trying to save our guys from the Germans accidentally was shelling our guys. So the conceit of that book is Cher Ami um, narrates half of the book in first person pigeon and Whittlesey narrates 
just like a human, you know, and, and both of them are at these climactic moments. And I think, you know, if, if people are like, what first person pigeon, um, I would say like free your mind. Why not? Like fiction allows us to empathically inhabit people different than ourselves. And I would include pigeons in personhood. I think if they read the book, they'll see how magnificent they are. And also Sherami is truly like we as a species did this to her when she died because she was such a hero the government took her to the Smithsonian and had her stuffed and now she's in the museum. So I was like, well, if we've already done that to her, we've got her body stuffed and on display. Why couldn't she narrate her basically like memoir from inside the glass case in the Smithsonian? So um, yeah, I like to have, I like to have fun. And the, the, a new book that's coming out um, next fall in 2023 is called from dust to stardust. And it's about this uh, movie star based on Colleen Moore, a real movie star who the the movie A Star is Born is based on her life. So you kind of get her real life story fictionalized by me. I call her a different name. But then she also did this um, like amazing outsider art project where as her marriage was falling apart and talkies were coming and she was under this immense anxiety, she started building a fairy castle. She called it a dollhouse because she loved dollhouses forever. But she So she took this fortune that she'd accrued as a movie star and just built this one ton fairy castle full of like, you know, the jewels that her soon to be ex-husband gave her. She was like, caught them up, throw them in the castle. Um, and then she toured this castle for uh, children's charities during the Great Depression, kind of making the point that we need to raise money, but we also need to not forget that like beautiful stuff exists. So um, this castle is in the Museum of Science and Industry here in Chicago. So the conceit of this book is she's in her late 60s. She's come to the museum in December of 1968 to record the audio guide to her own castle. So you get her touring you through each room of this magnificent structure. And then as she does it, she slips back to her past and you sort of hear like, okay, I came to Hollywood when I was 14 and here's how, here's how it all went down. Mm, That sounds wonderful. Okay. Everyone should see the castle. It's great. If you're in Chicago, Museum of Science and Industry, it's in the basement. Come see it. It'll blow your mind. Yes, yes, yes. Um, a reason to travel. That's what we all need right now. That's that's not just for travel's sake. I, I love the idea of a, a book that is half narrated by a pigeon. So I'm, I'm hoping that the major response was, oh my God, I have to check this out. And if you do, you will be very happy for doing so. Oh, uh, Kathleen, I am, I am mindful of the time. I'm hoping that we can get you to come back for Dust to Stardust. Absolutely. Um, but in the meantime, I want to remind listeners of that Where Are the Snows is wonderful, um, kinetic, beautiful, heartbreaking, hilarious, sweet, and uh, full of talons. So it's fantastic. Um Thank you so much for being on the New Books Network, Kathleen. Thank you, Eric, for having me. Your questions were great, and it was a pleasure. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Kathleen Rooney, author of Where Are the Snows? Here on the New Books Network.